0: Hey, welcome to uh, Rockbridge, you're one of our si- at one of our six physical locations, you're uh, in an English or a Spanish service, or you're online, my name is Matt, we're excited, delighted, fired up that you're here, believe you're not here by accident or coincidence. Hey, before we jump into part five of the series we're in, navigating through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, before we jump into that, I want to remind everybody, coming up is first Wednesday, we call it the most important service of the month, because We take the Lord's Supper together. We pray together for our people. If you have a prayer need, we do an elder led prayer season in obedience to James chapter 5. Just want to encourage you to be present at that. And and we're excited every time we get to gather together to worship and to pray. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to get to work in 1 Samuel chapter 5. You know, we're navigating through pretty much every, uh, every word, every verse of this incredible book in the Old Testament where Israel is going to ask God for a king, and that's the title package of the crown. But for for this week, what we're going to focus on is just dealing with what I'll just call reality, right? I mean, we all have reality checks. You know, we kind of sometimes can be prone to live in fantasy. We can get distracted from reality, like when you're going 55 and it becomes 35, right? There's a reality check coming, right? Uh, And so life is full of reality checks, and and what's going to happen in in 1 Samuel chapter 5 is is something that I think happens in in our world as well, right? It's something that we've got to pay attention to. It's what happens when we encounter just the reality of God, because God is the great and eternal reality. I mean, he's always existed He he doesn't need us, and he's always existed. Yet, you and I can sort of live as if God doesn't exist. Or we can live as if God is an hour on our calendar or an occasional thing. Or God is like the firehouse you pass by a hundred times and you see it, but you don't really worry about it until you need it, right? But Scripture says this about the reality of God. It says, before the mountains were born... Before you gave birth to earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you were God. And and one thing that that I believe is abundantly true for everybody here, doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual journey or in your life, is that sooner or later, we are asked to deal with the reality of God's presence. Just the reality of his presence. Not what you think God should do, shouldn't do. Not the debate of, you know, evolution or dinosaurs. Not these intellectual arguments. Not facts about God. Do you believe in Christmas? Do you believe in Easter? But sooner or later, we just have to deal with the reality of God's presence. In fact, a revelation alludes to this at the end of times. Listen to what it says. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And as you read scripture, one thing becomes pretty clear that the presence of God is the point of scripture, that we're created to live in God's presence, that's Genesis 1 and 2. We sinned against God, rebelled against God, and we lost the presence of God, and God's trying to give that back to us. And and, and that's what what Scripture is about. God's trying to get back with us. One of Jesus' names is Emmanuel, God with us. One of the great promises of God is I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you, that the presence of God is the point, which is the great eternal reality that we would live in light of that presence. Listen to Revelation again. I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And I think there's a lot of us who are ready for that day, right? There's a lot of people ready for that day. And, and so we have all this about God's presence. Here's what we were just learning. Now, God's presence is infinitely satisfying. Now, you've been temporarily satisfied. Sometimes you're temporarily satisfied by something illegal, immoral, or unethical, Right? But God is offering himself as in, in infinitely satisfying ways. Listen to one of my favorite verses of Scripture. You show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. The pleasures of living with you forever. There's a lot of people, and this may be a reason why some of you are not a Christian or not a sold-out Christian. A lot of people think God is anti-happiness. God's very much for your happiness. He wants you to have happiness infinitely, which comes from his presence. Now, married to that, though, and this is where the tension's going to come this weekend as we navigate, God's presence is also severely dangerous and incredibly disruptive. God's presence is severely dangerous and incredibly disruptive. That's why there's some people listening to me and you don't really want to be close to God. Or shame and guilt are so high in your life you don't see how you could be close to God. And Hebrews reminds us it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So here we have God infinitely satisfying. The whole point of our existence is to live forever in the satisfying presence of God, and yet God's presence is dangerous, and God's presence is disrupted. And the Word of God says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so what's going to happen in 1 Samuel chapter 5-6, and and we'll actually get to verse 1 of chapter 7, is God is going to focus the Israelites and the Philistines a little bit, and you and I, if we're cooperating with the Spirit of God, in a very powerful way. We've been looking at this kind of fill-in-the-blank that God or Christ, if God, you would just give me this, I would have happiness, security, and identity. And here, here's what's going to happen in 1 Samuel 5 and 6. And, and I really believe if you walk with Jesus or you're going to walk with Jesus, you're going to have one of these moments, one of these seasons that, 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 where God does this. He's going to say, hey, look, I don't care about your cancer. And he's not going to say that. But he's going to say, he's going to feel that way. I I, I, we're not going to talk about your marriage. We're not going to talk about the problem you're facing. We're not going to talk about your situation. God's going to say, I just need you to deal with me. I just need you to deal with the reality of my presence. Yeah, God, but, 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 but I need to make more money. Stop. Yeah, God, but I've got this and I've got this and this unanswered prayer. and this. Stop and he is going to zero us in and ask us to do something learn something understand something just about the reality of his presence and that's first samuel chapter 5 and 6 so what god is doing and he has to do this is he has to self disclose himself and he has to do so in ways that we can understand and we can apprehend because if it, 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 he's that mighty and he's that powerful and he's so completely different than us that we can't comprehend him unless he self-discloses to us. And so what we see in this chapter, these two chapters, excuse me, is God's initiative to alert us to himself. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. So after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it to the temple of Dagon... And placed it next to his statue. Now, let's, let's just be clear in the, uh, how, how God's presence works. In the Old Testament, God's presence was localized on a particular place. The temple, the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, right? In the New Testament, God's presence is localized in the incarnate God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Post-Pentecost, God's presence is less about space. It's more internal because God can be with all of us in a very personal, powerful way through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, God's presence is often synonymous with a place. And so in this story, the Ark of the Covenant is, is, is that abiding place of God's presence. And God allows the Ark to be captured And God says, okay, I'm going to be the visiting team and allows the ark to be placed in a pagan shrine to a fertility god, a sex god of the Philistines named Dagon. And, you know, think about you and I. We look at our country and we're like, what's coming to Christianity in America? What's coming to Christianity? What's happening? What are people doing? Listen, God ain't threatened. God's not threatened by that. God's not concerned in the least by that. And so he's going to take this opportunity to self-disclose so the people of the Philistines and the Israelites have to deal with the reality of his presence. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon falling with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Amen. You know? So God does something. He manifests himself. Everybody's asleep. Nobody sees it. It's kind of like if a tree falls in a forest, no one's there to hear it. doesn't really make a sound. But God shows up and does something. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. There's kind of comedy in the Bible, right? If this is your big, powerful God, why is he dependent upon human beings to prop him back up? That's one way you know you got the wrong God. When money lets you down... When people let you down, when social media lets you down, when politicians let you down, and you're having to prop up something you depended upon, you got the wrong God, right? But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon again, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off. Hands are symbolic of power, be mentioned about eight times in this passage of Scripture, hand of God, hand of Dagon. And he was lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. So it's like he's just a maimed idol. And so in this, God is revealing something about himself. There's no priesthood. There's no church members. There's no anybody. It's just the the, the ark and the statue of Dagon. And God is revealing something about himself. And I'm going to name this the independent supremacy of God. That God doesn't need us. That God doesn't require our assistance, that there's a very real essence where we don't serve God, we don't add to God's value, God doesn't need us to fight His battles, God doesn't need us to stand up for Him. God will take and walk into the pagan sex God shrine of the Philistines and He'll win a battle in the middle of the night. Amen. Right? I mean, that's, just, that's it. And, and it sort of puts us in our place, though. We're not needed. We're wanted, but not needed. It puts us in our place because it's really not about us. See, though, when it comes to us and God, don't we want to make it about us? Isn't one of our biggest beefs, gripes with God? is God, why won't you do what I think you ought to do? God, if I had your power, this is what I would do. And, and, it's, and this independently supreme God is contrasted with a little g God that we have to put him back in his place. We have to clean up the When we have the wrong God that falls down and can't get back up, we have to clean up his mess. How many of us here this weekend have the wrong God? Not, not one named Dagon, but maybe Pride. Maybe a substance, maybe money, maybe sex, maybe what people think of you. How many of us have the wrong God? Not one who's independently supreme, doesn't need us, not about us, but wants us. And and so, you know, it kind of puts us in our place that our response to God's independent supremacy is one of dependent humility. And I think when we understand as God reveals himself this way, there needs to be a lot less asking, God, how can this happen? How, God, and how, God, and how are you? And just really resting that God can. A lot of us are getting, how, God? How are you going to work this out? How is this going to happen, God? I can't. How, how? God can. Because he's independently supreme and doesn't need us. He wants us. It's not about us. And so you got this going on. Here's this revelation of God. And then what do you do? And the, the whole story that we're going to read is when God reveals himself and just says, you got to deal with me. you got to deal with me. How do the people respond? Well, look what the Philistines do. Still today, the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon and Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. They just create a tradition. Hey, something crazy happened in here, so we're not going to step on the threshold as we walk in the temple. They just created tradition. Do you know why? Because tradition is easier than transformation. It's easier to invent a religious tradition than to change your thinking, to repent. It's easier to do that than to change based on what God has revealed about himself. And this is where, this is where you know, we have to understand Christianity is a relationship more than a religion. Religion are things we do, okay? God wants a relationship with us. doesn't need one, but he wants one. So, so tradition is easier to adopt than transformation. Well, the story continues. So the Philistines have the ark. So they have, quote-unquote, the localized presence of God, and the hand of God was heavy, or the Lord's hand, was heavy on the people of Ashdod. So here it is. God's presence creates a problem. The presence of God creates a problem. It it creates a problem for us. It creates a problem for the Philistines. You'll see it in a couple of verses. It creates a problem for the Israelites. We don't like to think about that. We like God as my bosom buddy. We like God as with me. That's a good thing. But the presence of God creates a problem. And so, what is going to be our response or their response to the unfiltered, unadulterated? God has showed up. God is saying, hey, no, I am not going to limit myself. I'm not going to, this is not about your unanswered prayers. This is not about your intellectual doubts. This is not about your deal, your upbringing, your situation, how you were raised. This is about just the presence of God, and it creates a problem. He terrified the people of Ashdod. And its territory and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and our God Dagon. So they called all the Philistine rulers together and they asked, What should we do with the ark of Israel's God? What do we do with the presence of God? Now there's a hint, okay? God does not adjust himself to us. We have to do the aligning to him. And that's the problem, right? That's the problem. Because God, you should keep me comfortable. God, you should give me what I think I need to be happy. God, if this is what I think sex is, then I'll change what you said it was and make it what I think it is, and you should be good with that. God, I can't be happy if I don't live the American dream. So, God, you should be a God of prosperity, material prosperity. Right? But the real question is, what do we do with the presence of God? So here they come up with a solution. Well, let's move it. Let's give it to Heisman, Right? Let's move God away. The ark of, God, of Israel's God should be moved to Gath, they replied. So they moved the ark of Israel's God. After they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath. The presence of God creates a problem. Causing a great panic, he afflicted the people of the city from youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. The people of Gath then sent the ark of God to Ekron. But when it got there, the Ekronites cried out, They've moved the ark of Israel's God to kill us and our people the echronites called the philistine rulers together they said send the ark of israel's god away let it return to its place so it won't kill us and our people for the fear of death pervaded the city let me say this there's only two kinds of fear there's the fear of the lord and there's the fear of everything else the fear of death is winning and so they want to move god away god's hand was oppressing them Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up into heaven. So when the problem of God's presence arises, and this is when God just says, hey, again, we're going to put your prayer list to the side. We're going to put your questions, your doubts, your concerns, and we just are going to deal with my presence. There's some things that bubble up, some typical responses that emerge Some of us just redefine God to my personal God. And our personal God is not always a biblical God. It's not always the one true God. We conform God. We make God casual. We make God trivial. We say things about God that God has never revealed about himself. You ever notice that? Oh, nobody's perfect and God understands. No, he put his son on the cross because nobody's perfect. Right? Right? We say things about God that make us feel better or feel in control, and we're redefining God instead of dealing with his presence. You know, we, we categorize sin, and usually the sins that we struggle with are less bad that the sins of other people struggle with. And so in our self-righteousness, we sort of believe, well, maybe God's a little more, at least I'm not like those people, or I'm a little more, I'm a little closer to heaven than those people, when the Word of God says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen. So we just redefine God, or, or God is my friend, or, or God is love, and love is love. God's also holy. God also has wrath. God also has justice. So but that's what we do and so in our minds we me and God are good. Do you know like about 80 to 90% of Americans believe that they'll when they die they'll go to heaven. Yet they also believe and these are Christians, some of them supposedly. They also believe things like Jesus is not the only way. It's not really a hell. Premarital sex is okay, because that makes us happy. We see the problem. But that's how we feel good and minimize, quote-unquote, our perceived problem with God's presence. But, and there's another thing that happens in the story. People distance themselves from God. People distance themselves from God. Shame and guilt keep people away. Fear keeps people away. You've probably heard it. Maybe you've said it. I can't come to church right now. The church would fall on top of me, right? And, and, and they say that tongue-in-cheek, but they really understand they're not living for God, and so they're afraid of God's presence, and so they create distance between themselves and God. And, and those are strategies that we do to protect ourselves and not have to wrestle with the problem of God's presence When God says, you need to deal with my presence. So he raises this question. Because I said at the top of the message, the presence of God is the point, and the presence of God is eternally or infinitely satisfying. What does it take to get close to God? This holy, pure, powerful, independently supreme God. And that's the tension. It's the tension in 1 Samuel. It's the tension. So when the Ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory for seven months, we're in chapter 6 now, the Philistines summoned the priests and the diviners, like the witchcraft people, and pleaded, what should we do with the Ark of the Lord? What do we do with the presence of God? You know, we can do church services that are just littered with tradition, but have no presence. We can arrange our Christianity So we never have to deal with the presence of God. So they say, tell us how to send it back to its place. We just need to get rid of the presence of God. They replied, if you send the ark of Israel's God away, do not send it without an offering. Okay, so that's a step. We've got to acknowledge God. Send back a guilt offering to him and you'll be healed. Then the reason his hand hasn't been removed from you will be revealed. Remember, Dagon lost his hands when he was toppled uh, unceremoniously in the temple. And now it's the hand of God because there's only one God. They asked, what guilt offering should we send back to to him? And they answered, five gold tumors, five gold mice corresponding to the number of Philistine rulers. Apparently, some city state with five rulers. Since there was one plague for both of you and your rulers, make images of your tumors and of your mice that are destroying the land. A lot of scholars think this was an early outbreak of the bubonic plague which was spread by rodents. But look what they say. Give glory to Israel's God. You know, originally the word glory is just weight. Acknowledge the weight. Acknowledge the reality of Israel's God align to Israel's God because Israel's God's not going to align to you. He's not going to lower his standard for you. He's not going to accommodate himself to you. He's God. Give glory to God. And perhaps he will stop oppressing you and your gods and your land. Why harden your hearts? They point back to Egypt and Pharaoh and the Red Sea As the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened them when he afflicted them, didn't they send Israel away and Israel left? And so now we start to understand a little bit of what we have to grasp. If the presence of God is the point, the presence of God is infinitely satisfying, but the presence of God creates a problem, what do we need to do? Number one is this, we all need to grasp the gravity of God's presence. The severity, the gravity, the importance. And I choose the word gravity intentionally because all of us here are under the presence, in the presence of gravity. You could not walk, you could not run without gravity. But gravity can also kill you, can it not? It's the same with the presence of God. Necessary, right, to, to hold the atoms and the electrons together, the stars in the sky, the oxygen we just breathe. Necessary, but serious, right? We have to grasp the p- gravity of God's presence. It's our sole ambition, but it's at the same time not something to be toyed with. So we grasp the gravity of, God, gravity of God's presence. And then they come up with some little weird thing with cows, okay? And here's, here's what they come up with. They said, prepare one new cart and two, new, two milk cows that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pin them up. They're trying to discern, is this uh, outbreak of tumors because of Israel's God or not? So they just kind of throw out a a little test. So they get these cows, and then they, they do this. Take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, put the gold objects that they're sending him as a guilt offering in a box beside the ark, send it off, let it go on its way. Then watch... If it goes up the road to its homeland toward Beth Shemesh, it is the Lord who made this terrible trouble for us. However, if it doesn't, we will know that it was not his hand that punished us. It was just something that happened to us by chance. So they take the calves, put the calves up, put the heifers right with the, with the ark hitched to a, a, a cart uh, uh, behind the heifers... And they're going to hear their babies, and and so it's really hard for them to go to Israel. Why would they not go back to their calves? What's going to happen? And they're just trying to say, is this God, is this not, or is this chance? And here's what we know. With the one true God, there's no such thing as chance. With the one true God, there is his presence, and nothing can be left to chance. So the men did this, and the cows went straight up The road to Beth Shemesh, that's back to Israel. They stayed on that one highway, lowing as they went. They never strayed to the right or the left. The Philistine rulers were walking behind them to the territory of Beth Shemesh. They understand this is God. They understand the gravity of God's presence. They understand the problem of God's presence. They understand that God has spoken to them through cows. Right? Right? Now, he speaks to Israel. He speaks to us through creation, through prophets, through Jesus. But in in this, it's crazy, right, that God is dealing with a pagan people. And so embedded in this, I want us all to hear something. One of the most powerful invitations in all of Scripture is this. It's the invitation to draw near to God. It's the invitation to not believe that your life is subject to chance, but God is trying to get your attention. God is trying to awaken you to His reality. God is trying to alert you to His presence. God is inviting you to draw near to Him. You're not here by accident. What happened to you last week, last month, five years ago was not by chance. And yeah, the blank is maybe empty, God plus blank. But God's saying, hey, would you just deal with me? And if he's dealing with pagan Philistines, there's an open invitation for all of us. Listen to this in the New Testament. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near. How? How? By the blood of Christ. James 4.8 says, draw near to God. (coughs) That is our invitation, right? Now, here's the the challenge. Now, listen. For the Philistines, they've been infected by boils, by tumors, by bubonic plague, whatever it is medically that was going on. And they wanted that gone. But they also wanted the presence of God gone. So I want us to be warned, okay? Sometimes it's easier to respond to the pain of the situation but not the reality of God's presence. Sometimes it's the consequences that we want remedied or rectified but we don't really want God's presence. So we go back to the 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 fill-in-the-blank that really frames up this part of the Bible, 1 Samuel, and we really want this taken care of. So the Philistines are like, hey, get rid of the tumors. And if it means we have to get rid of God, that would be better. So get rid of the tumors. So listen, you're going to miss the infinitely satisfying presence of God if all you're worried about is mitigating consequences, not getting caught, dealing with the wake or the shrapnel of a fallen world. The Philistines just wanted the pain of the tumors, the boils gone. But they wanted nothing to do with the presence of God. So now the presence, the localized presence of God contained by the ark goes into Israel again. They get it back. So the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and they saw the ark, they were overjoyed to see it. The people of the city chopped up the cart and offered the cows as burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites removed the ark of the Lord along with the box containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. That day, the people of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. This is amazing, right? This is what it's about, right? When the five Philistine rulers observed this, they returned to Ekron that same day, and then God struck down the people of Bethshemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, who is able, the problem of God's presence, who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom should the ark go from here? The problem of his presence. It looks like Israel's getting their spiritual vitality back. It looks like revival's coming. But they look inside the ark Apparently in a defiling way. And God strikes them down. And so for the people of Beth Shemesh, the problem is the burden of God's holiness. The burden of God's holiness. It's, it's, it's Okay, God's not going to you know, fill in the blank the way we think he should. How do we deal with, how do we relate to this holy God? But there's a hint, I think. And it requires us to embrace the holy fear of the Lord. Not a distancing fear that pushes you away, not a cowering fear that prohibits intimacy and communion, but a holy fear of the Lord. Think think about it this way for a second, okay? Think about it this way. You know, we'll run from real life horror and terror, yet we'll go watch horror movies, right? Right? We all have a fear like of you know, falling out of a, from great heights or an airplane, yet we'll go ride a roller coaster. It's an echo of reality that we're supposed to be safely afraid of God. Like imagine we're in the Himalayas, right? And a mighty storm is coming. But we find like a cleft in the rocks. And we get inside of that and we're safe. We're safe from the storm and the the lightning and the hail and the weather and the elements. But we're still in it, right? So what God has done is he's made a way for us to be safe and afraid with reverence in his presence. When we're in Christ, we are safe from the problem created by God's presence. Because his wrath has been satisfied. It hasn't gone away. It's been satisfied. His holiness is on display. His love and justice are there. And we're safe only because Jesus is in our place. So it's not so when we talk about the problem of God's presence, when we talk about the holy fear of God, and God is not casual, and God is not trivial, and and God is not to be toyed with, and God has and we have to deal with this, but God is satisfying. We have to have the cross in view. We have to have the cross in view. And, And and the story ends with this great question where do we send the ark? Who can handle the presence of God? Because everybody that's gotten near it has gotten burned. And and, and then, just like right on cue, I love how the Holy Spirit and how the biblical authors work together. Something emerges. Last two verses. They sent messengers to the residents of kiriath Jerem saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and get it. And like, who wants it? Who really wants the presence of God? So the people of Kiriath-jearim come for the ark of the Lord and they took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and they consecrated, which means set apart, his son Eliezer to take care of it. They consecrated his son. They set him apart because God we move to God. We adjust to God. We align to God. And so the fourth thing is we have to commit ourselves to consecration. That if there are things of us, in us, from us that are not of God, we have to be willing to deal with those. If we want to enjoy the presence of God, there are parts of our lives we have to put under the blood of Jesus and parts of our lives that we have to set apart to consecration and to holiness because he's worthy and he's infinitely satisfying. So here's the invitation, and here's the conclusion, and I'll just quote it from Hebrews, okay? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near, there's our invitation, to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What's the reward of seeking God? God. Because He is infinitely satisfying. And we are designed to be safely afraid of God. With reverence and awe, give glory to God, consecrate ourselves, and live in the reality of His presence. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, and we'll pray together. God, I just want to hit a couple of things. I can't hit everything. So Holy Spirit, just have your way right now. But God, I want to pray over us that we would uh, repent of being casual, trivial, and or superficial with your presence. God, I, I want to pray for people that because of guilt and shame they do not believe they can come into your presence. And so, God, with the cross of Christ in view, may we see on the cross, God, that your presence requires death, that our sin requires payment, but that your love was pleased to give that death and make that payment. So we can be in your presence with reverence, and with awe. God, I believe you're calling this church to a season of consecration where we are willing to lay some things down in order to pick some things up and draw closer to you. God, there is an open invitation from your word, not from Matt, not from me, to draw near to you. Lord, would you make it abundantly clear what drawing near to you looks like for every soul listening this weekend at Rockbridge. For some people, it means they need to be saved right now, give you, Jesus, the steering wheel of their lives. For some people, it means we've got to quit placating sin and truly repent. Some of us, God, it's good things that are getting in the way of the best things. But may we be committed to consecration because we are committed to living in your presence, which is the point, which is infinitely satisfying. And we thank you, Emmanuel, God with us, for being with us this weekend. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen.